it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and we got a uh, great show in store, as always, to kick off uh, the week um, on this uh, Monday edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Coming up in the uh, third hour of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk with uh, author of the new book, The Selfish Giant, Benjamin H. Berkeley. And uh, in the middle of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk about a, uh, a new book called What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship by Dr. Amelia Kelly, who will be joining me by phone also. Um had originally scheduled, and again, this is one of those uh, welcome to uh, live radio moments. Um, I was expecting a call from the president and chief executive of the National Immigration Forum in D.C. to talk about um, the latest refugee crisis. Um, His name is uh, Ali Nurani, and... um, the book is called Crossing Borders, the Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants. And if for some reason we don't uh, connect connect in the next minute or so, I will uh, substitute a uh, oh uh, an interview we did with uh, Ed Watts that uh, should be uh, should be interesting. Um, and uh, we'll try to reschedule Ali. So with uh, that being said, let's, uh, let's move on. And uh, all of the guests on this show are great. So you're in store for a very interesting conversation straight ahead. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a professor of history at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of a new book called The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea by Edward J. Watts. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. I'm really glad to be here. Um, Let's... uh, talk about this a little bit um you know they say that that news is the first draft of history and that history repeats itself um is what we see in the news uh, an example of history repeating itself 
Yeah, I think this is that's a great way to frame the question uh, because I think what we're seeing in our world and in our society is a series of overlapping problems and crises that make people very, very uncomfortable and make people disoriented and uh, kind of struggling to figure out how they fit in a world that's rapidly changing and being um, confronted with all sorts of dangerous and disruptive things. And I think what Roman history shows is this this happened very, very frequently uh, to the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic, uh, a state that lasted for a very long time, for over 2,200 years. Um, and what we see when these crises hit Romans, they struggle to understand the long-term implications of the struggles they're undergoing. Uh, and so you get these narratives, these stories about Rome being in decline or Rome potentially uh, entering into a catastrophic period where it might fall. But Romans don't know how those stories are ending. And so they sort of project a future for themselves based on what they imagine the trajectories of their society to be. And sometimes those stories they tell prove to be very prescient. And sometimes the stories they tell are completely off base. And so I think one of the things that Roman history shows us is we are going through a lot of things right now that we collectively as a society are struggling to understand. Uh, and history, in a way, may not repeat itself as a sequence of events that match up exactly um, to a set of things that occurred in the past, but the general trajectories and the trends and the way of thinking about change, these things do repeat. And I think what we're in the middle of right now is a period where Americans and people around the world are trying and struggling to figure out exactly what the changes we're encountering actually mean and where our society is headed. And it's very hard when you're in the middle of this um, to understand what changes are significant and what changes are kind of uh, insignificant and not particularly serious to worry about. But you talk about people from ancient Rome to Donald Trump using uh, the concept of decline to grab power and influence. Um, the the thing that I wonder, and, and I remember uh, Barack Obama saying once, uh, maybe right before Donald Trump was elected president or right after, that Donald Trump was not the cause of the problem, that he was a symptom of the problem. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an interesting way to look at it because there are a lot of people who agreed with Donald Trump that the U.S. is in decline? Yeah, I think that one of the um, one of the things that we can see from looking at the past and looking at these stories that play out again and again over time uh, is that there is uh, there are moments in history where people feel profoundly disoriented because the world is changing around them very quickly. Um, and one of the most profoundly disruptive moments that um, that causes that sensation is when there is rapid socioeconomic change. Uh, and in particular, when there is a kind of new economic model that comes into place that allows certain people to become fabulously wealthy and other people to feel like they don't really understand the rules of the game anymore. Um, and that invites people like well, in the Roman period, Tiberius Gracchus, or even people like Donald Trump, to come forward and say, this is what is causing the problem that you are uncomfortable with, 
And here is a solution. And the solution frequently in those, in those situations targets other people. It doesn't target policies. It instead targets people that you can blame for causing the problems that make people uncomfortable. And so I think what um, Obama may be referencing there is a sense, a very profound sense, that society is changing quickly, uh, that economic prospects in particular are changing radically, and that there are people who do not understand the new rules of the game and feel like they are being left behind. And that invites people to come forward, people like Donald Trump, to come forward with claims that they understand the problem, they can explain the problem, and they can offer a solution that uh, will make the people who feel uncomfortable feel better about the situation around them. Well, politicos don't generally embrace a strategy unless they think it's going to work. And this strategy seems to work time and time again. Are there solutions out there that we're not turning to in favor of just blaming a particular ethnic group or gender or other subset? Yeah, I think what we see in Roman history is there there are three kinds of declines that show up. Um, one In one case, it's what we're talking about now, where the decline it may not even be real um, or it's invented. And in Roman history, you have a lot of cases where objectively society is getting richer, the empire is getting stronger, um, even democracy is getting more representative, but people are uncomfortable by it. And uh, this leads to people claiming that Rome is in decline when really there's no objective measure that would show that the state is in decline. But, but they create a story that benefits them. Um, and then they demagogue against other people so that their own prospects can, get, can improve. But there's also two other examples that we see in Roman history where the decline is real, you know, where there is an actual problem. And by objective measures, we can see the state is struggling um, and the conditions of its citizens are not improving. <laughs> um, and Rome has two ways that it responds to that. Uh, one way is a very destructive way. Uh, to address, not to choose to not address the problem, but instead to target people in Roman society that you can blame for causing it. And what that does is uh, creates division in society. It leads, in many cases, to people being killed um, or to people losing their rights or to people losing their property. Uh, and it doesn't do much to solve whatever issue Rome is encountering at that time. But there's a third way, and this is the way that I think um, we should as a society embrace. And this is, a, I think, the person who best exemplifies this is the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who rules over Rome at a time of really serious crisis, um, when the empire is hit by smallpox for the first time. Um, probably 10% of the population dies off. Uh, cities are abandoned. The frontiers are threatened by invasion. Um, the army can't even campaign because they've been affected so badly by the disease. And what Marcus does is instead of blaming people for very real crises, he instead identifies the contributions that all Romans can make to bring society back. And the conditions improve only slightly. I mean, Marcus dies in 180. Smallpox is still there. Um, but what Marcus is able to do is make Romans feel like collectively they are contributing to a solution to these very real problems. 
And when we hear about other historians um, who lived under Marcus talking about that age, they talk about it as a golden age, not because conditions were great. I mean, they were terrible, but because what Marcus was doing was creating ways for Rome to respond collectively and become stronger as a society, despite the fact that it's confronting really, really significant problems. And so I think that that might be the answer for us. When we see these identifications of problems, it's important for us to understand that there is a way to come together and move forward that will make our, our collective society, make our country, make our nation stronger. And those are the things that we should embrace. Um, the, the collective, um, positive, constructive approaches to solving problems that make us all together better. When we look at the events going on in the U.S., political division and um, um, clear systemic racism and, and any other number of issues that we might look at that lead to and include uh, mistrust of government, um, denying science, um, all of these things that seem to contribute to the woes that people um, perceive in the U.S. Um, when we when we look at those things, and, so, and some of these things long-term are problematic, um, technology eventually eliminating more and more jobs, and, and we're not hearing what's going to happen with the economy, what's going to happen with people who there aren't jobs for. Um, yeah. what, how do we, is, are there things we can learn from history that help answer those seemingly futuristic questions? I think that what we can take away from Rome, uh, and from, and from Roman history more generally is these problems can be addressed, but they can be addressed through policies. Um, it is not something that you can capably address by targeting individuals. So my, my daughter is, a, um, she's 14, she's on TikTok quite a bit. And when Jeff Bezos uh, did his little trip to space, there was a petition on TikTok that said that Bezos shouldn't be allowed to come back. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that's a, that very clearly targets a sense of economic inequality, a sense that the society and the system is rigged, a sense that Bezos in particular has benefited greatly while a lot of people's standards and employment and uh, ability to partake in um, what we would call the American dream is declining. Um, but saying that this is Bezos's fault may make us feel good, but it's not going to solve the problem. Um, and what Roman history shows is it is frequently the case that Roman politicians will target people that they blame for problems simply because it makes people feel better and it improves the conditions of the, and the political careers of the politicians proposing this. But the real problems are addressed by changing policies. Uh, and it's only when you change policy that you can actually start to improve these conditions. More with historian and author Ed Watts, straight ahead. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com Discoveries They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew and discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? 
So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with historian and author Ed Watts, straight ahead. What we see, for example, in Rome in the second century B.C. is a very significant moment of economic dislocation, where there are few people who understand how to benefit from a financial system Uh, And they get very, very rich very, very quickly. And a lot of people feel like they're left behind. Uh, The way that Rome ultimately solves this is by creating policies that provide food stipends, um, ultimately, in some cases, land, uh, but also just basic support for the people who are in these conditions. But it takes Rome a long time to get there. And you end up having a a good number of people getting killed. Uh, You have urban violence and riots and all kinds of things that don't solve the problem but make individuals momentarily feel better. So I think the Roman lesson would be that these are problems that we can collectively address, but we don't address them by saying Jeff Bezos must stay in space. We address them by saying here are some policy solutions that we can put into place that will improve conditions for people, Um, and maybe that's a universal basic income. Um, Maybe that's a jobs program. Maybe there are elements of our tax policy that we can reform that will make things work better. But addressing policies is constructive. Attacking people is destructive. And I think that's that's something that Roman history shows very clearly. You know, it's interesting you you talk about that that, uh, uh, Bezos uh, (laughs) petition to leave him in space. But that reminds me that so much of the political rhetoric and discourse boils down to, I'm right and you're a moron. Uh-huh. And and I don't know how we get out of that, because we saw in the Republican primary that uh, Donald Trump won to go on to the presidency. Here he was out there just pounding on different ethnic groups and, and ideologies and... Um, and then you had people like John Kasich, uh, Republican governor from Ohio, who was trying to say, let's work together, and he hovered around the bottom of the field. What's it going to take to get that, um, that, that leader that, that is able to convince people that we can work together to accomplish these things? And by the way, something you said that, that went by almost parenthetically that I wanted to comment on is I think a lot of people in the U.S. believe that public assistance is an invention of the U.S. Hmm. And you yeah, were talking about that- them doing it back, you know, in Rome. Yeah, well, so I think the public assistance in Rome, and I, I don't want to wander too far away, but the public assistance in Rome is actually very fascinating um, because there are a number of ways it's done. Uh, but, but they end up, they first start as a system of basically just sort of transfers where the government pays for food and then makes basically ration tokens available to people in the city of Rome. 
But as you get into the empire, there actually becomes a very sophisticated way to do these sorts of things. Uh, and there's a system called the Alimenta system that's in a sense a social welfare and education program. Um, but it's funded basically by providing loans to local wealthy people uh, that require the local people to reinvest in their communities. And then the interest they pay on the loan sustains the program. And so you have a sort of threefold way of improving the situation in communities that's actually extremely sophisticated uh, because you're promoting local investments, you're keeping money in the community, uh, you're allowing the landowners to make more money because they're in this system and they're making more money than they're paying an in interest, but the interest then sustains the welfare payments and sustains the public education. And so it's a very sophisticated way of building a policy that is self-sustaining, that doesn't require regular infusions of money from the central government. Um, and it's something that, you know, it might be even interesting to think about how we might do something like that in the United States, where we're perpetually talking about uh, assistance coming out of public coffers. Um, what the Romans figured out is a way to stimulate a sustainable program of public assistance that doesn't actually require much in the way of regular infusions from the public budget. Um, and so in some ways, I think the Romans have a more sophisticated system of public, um, you know, public welfare and public support than, than even we have right now. Um, and so I think it's, it's very interesting, though, to consider how we come back together. Uh, and I think it's interesting to watch what Biden is doing. I think Biden is actually doing this very deliberately. What he's trying, I think, to do is deliberately be boring, um, you know, deliberately just kind of move calmly through the crises uh, and in that way build a kind of support for a pragmatic way of approaching problems. Um, and this, I think, involves basically saying contribute to the solution or get out of the way. I mean, he actually said this openly, I think, to Ron DeSantis, where he, he said, in essence, you know, if you're not going to so help solve the problem, at least don't make it worse. And I think that might be the way forward. Um, if we are focusing on solutions, real pragmatic solutions, policy solutions, you don't need to attack the people who are blocking this. You just need to tell them to get out of the way. And I think Biden is trying to do that. Um, the question, and I think it's a very real question, is are we as a society willing to listen? You know, how, how many people believe that it's more important to solve problems than it is to just simply fight in the trenches uh, and attack each other? Um, I think there is a I think there is a large majority of the country that wants to do that. Uh, I I hope that this begins this majority begins to express this pragmatic approach to solving problems um, in the electoral system and uh, and starts punishing people who are just performing partisanship uh, and embracing people who are actually pragmatically looking to come up with the best approaches to solve problems. Um, but I also confess that my children also think this is a totally naive way to see the world. Um, and, and maybe they're right. I hope they're not. <laughs> maybe they are. Well, I was just talking uh, recently um, with another author who says all societies die and that we should expect that to be inevitable. 
and and perhaps uh, prepare ourselves for what comes after? Uh, I think that that's true on some level, but it's also not true. Um, I think that when you look at you look at a lot of societies across history, they reinvent themselves, they recover, they rebuild. Um, and so the, the Roman state, again, I mean, the state lasts for 2,200 years, but there are still people called Romans who look to come up with ways to create new approaches to living the life that they're accustomed to living under new conditions. Um, the last people who called themselves Romans, I mean, the people we call Greeks, uh, in the Middle Ages, called themselves Romans because they were the inhabitants, the citizens of the Roman state that was set, situated in Constantinople, a direct institutional, um, the, the direct institutional continuation of the state that was set up in the city of Rome in the 8th century BC. And so those Romans in Constantinople have every right to call themselves Romans, and everyone in the Middle Ages called them Romans. After the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, the state is not there anymore, but the Romans still are. Um, and so even one of the titles of the Ottoman Sultan is King of the Romans, um, because the Romans are an ethnic group that are under his control. The reason we don't have Romans anymore is because the modern kingdom of Greece, set up in the 19th century, embraced the idea of being Greek, not being Roman. But there were still people who called themselves Romans in some of the territories in the Aegean until really the 1940s. So I think what we can see is, do societies die? Well, political institutions, states, um, governments, these things can die. But societies can survive. Uh, they can rebuild themselves. They can even recreate a state. Uh, and after the the Crusaders sack of Constantinople in 1204, the Romans do not have a central government anymore, but they do have a sense of being Roman, and they do rebuild and reconstitute a Roman state that retakes Constantinople and reestablishes the Roman Empire in Constantinople for another 200 years. So I think political institutions can die, state structures can die. Um, but a nation can survive if the people are able to come together and recreate it or come together and preserve that identity and the things that made that society distinctive under new conditions. Uh, and that's where the uh, issue of sort of solving problems and uh, assembling um, a unified society is really important uh, because it's totally possible that the United States government could fall into really profound dysfunction. But it's up to us to maintain, you know, American society. Um, and it can, it can be maintained separate from a government or even a state structure. Now, the book, um, my guest is uh, Ed Watts, who, um, from the University of California, San Diego, and his book is The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. But you suggest that this uh, dangerous idea, uh, based on the notion that life used to be better and that one's political rivals are at fault, has has been in existence from ancient Rome up to and including Donald Trump. Um, the... The the question I have in the remaining minutes that we have left is, 
are there examples aside from Rome? Now, I know the book focuses on Rome and its ups and downs, but um, have we seen other, uh, I don't know whether to call it societies or, or governments, um, that, that fell because of this, this dangerous idea? Uh, I think that we see this dangerous idea invoked a lot. Maybe I mean, the we can Nazis. See it around. Uh, I, I mean, there is a, a big move in the early 20th century by people like Oswald Spengler to talk about the decline of the West and the fall of the West. Uh, and so the idea of societies and this cyclical approach to history is something that we we see again and again. I mean, this is even in Plato's Republic, this idea that societies with different sort of forms of government um, the government starts out in a positive direction, it evolves, it eventually declines into something that's bad, and then it's overthrown. And so this idea is very common across, um, across all of historical societies. I think what's interesting is in this moment we are right now, you see this idea invoked very, very frequently. I mean, it's being invoked in Britain, it's being invoked in Spain, it's being evoked in France, it's being even evoked in, um, in the Philippines. Uh, these are societies where, you know, some of them um, did have a moment where you could look back and say, well, that was a, that was a great moment for France, right? That was a moment of um, tremendous uh, success for Britain. Um, the Philippines, it's a little more difficult. And when was the moment that you look back to and say this was the, the glory days of the Philippines? But the idea of decline is something that Lots and lots of societies right now are feeling, um, and it's something that politicians across a large number of societies are invoking. Um, and this is, I think, an indication of the profound dislocation that a lot of people are feeling, and the idea that the changes that the society is undergoing are so serious that they threaten uh, a sense of belonging and a sense of well, orderly progression through life that people had believed they could take for granted in the past. Um, and so I think history shows us again and again that this idea shows up. Um, it's an idea that, you know, in many ways, um, if we pick a moment of conflict, frequently we will see this idea there. Uh, and so this is why the idea, I think, is so profoundly dangerous. But what I hope the book does with Rome is it shows us one society that lasts for a very long time and repeatedly confronts this idea. Um, and sometimes it confronts the idea when there isn't actually a problem. Sometimes it confronts the idea when there is a real problem, uh, but the solution will, in a way, not address the problem. It will instead make situations worse. And then sometimes the society comes together and actually fixes its problems. And around the world right now, I, I think it's hard to find societies that really are coming together effectively to address their problems. I think one example that immediately comes to mind is the situation in New Zealand in response to COVID, where uh, that was something that galvanized society, it galvanized the state, it brought people together, and New Zealand responded very effectively. And what about um, Ireland? Uh I don't know the situation in Ireland. I, I was just particular. I was just thinking it was so divided for so long and it seems to have overcome that. Yeah, I think that that, um, that does again um, show a way forward. Um, and I think that that's a good point that 
the situation in Ireland, especially across the, the years of the Celtic Tiger, uh, shows a really radical transformation of Irish society and the Irish economy, but one that didn't tear it apart. Uh, and that's remarkable. I mean, that, that takes, I think, significant leadership to manage that kind of transition uh, and make people feel like that transition has been good for everyone. The uh, Again, the book is called The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea um, by Edward J. Watts from the uh, uh, History Department at the University of California, San Diego. I know you're a historian, Ed, but um, and probably not clairvoyant, but how do you think history will look at the times we're going through in the U.S.? I think it's a very interesting moment um, because I think what history will do is look at some of the long-term choices we have made, even though we aren't really focusing on them. So, so a couple things that come to mind for me uh, involve the choices that we've made since the late 1960s, early 1970s, to focus on creating informa information technology infrastructure and focus less on things like clean energy um, and, you know, space travel. Uh, in the 1950s, when Isaac Asimov sat down and wrote the Foundation series, he was looking at the decline of Rome and imagining technological progress that focused on clean energy generation through nuclear power and space travel. And this reflected a very 1950s view of progress that we kind of walked away from starting in the 70s. And so our, our peak production of nuclear power um, and clean energy and our peak uh, space well, our best rockets, um, all happened in the 1970s. And we've in, instead moved in the direction that embraced information technology. I think that it's certainly plausible that in 100 years, people will look back and say that was a mistake. Um, you know, we created the Internet, we created Facebook, we balkanized our politics, we created lots of spheres for disinformation to occur, and we let the planet burn. Uh, we allowed climate change to happen, and we didn't give ourselves any ability to leave the planet if the planet became dangerous or difficult to inhabit. Uh, that may well be the story in 100 years that people tell about us. And so we have been focusing on short-term political battles in the United States, but it may well be that the story that people tell in the future is this long-term set of choices that we made over the course of 40, 50, 60 years um, to turn away from things that might actually solve the problems that they in the future will identify as dangerous, systemic um, issues that make our society basically unsustainable. Uh, and we may not be actually telling the story that they will tell. And so I think that that's something that we should be aware of. Uh, there is a bigger picture and a longer story and a bigger narrative that we are living through. And the smaller things we focus on may be part of that story, but they also may well be part of the bad choices that we are making to not focus on the big issues that future historians will identify as the crisis of our time. And Jeff Bezos will be stranded in space saying, how do you like me now? <laughs> if um, the 14-year-olds have their way. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, we've got to wrap it up there. But, um, Ed, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And I always like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is a great place to start, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. But you've written a number of other books um, about... Uh, well, for example, Mortal Republic, how Rome fell into tyranny, the the final pagan generation, and Hypatia, or Hypatia, the uh, life and legend of an ancient philosopher. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Do you have a website? So I, uh, I have a I have a website um, that goes through the university. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel that is uh, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome. Um, people can find that, and it has a series of lectures about Roman history uh, and Roman literature, uh, and I'm posting also a few conversations that are related to ideas in the book. And so if people are interested in that, they can, um, they can follow me on that YouTube channel. Uh, and that will also, I think, I, I'm hoping will also include short discussions of pieces of information, um, coins, and other pieces of ancient evidence that can give, a, give people a sense of how ancient historians work. So I would encourage people, if they're interested, to, to look me up there, and um, I look forward to engaging with them in that way, too. Well, Ed, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I really had a good time, and these were great questions and a great conversation. All right. Take care. Again, that was uh, Edward Watts, who is uh, the uh, professor of history at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of the book we've been talking about, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea, and we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. 
Gershon Radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Quiplet Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. 
friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your Hollywood reporter, Don Hinckley, at the premiere of what is probably the most talked about motion picture of all time. The story of the great love between the handsome Roman general and the Egyptian queen. We're hoping to interview the beautiful star of this epic. And, oh, I, I, I think we're in luck. Yes, yes. We are in luck. Here comes that great beauty now. Excuse me, would you like to say hello to your millions of fans? My name, Jose Jimenez. <laughs> hello to your millions of fans. <laughs> of course, uh, everyone here knows the name of your picture, but I'm sure you'd like to mention it again. The name of my picture is Gidget Goes Egyptian. <laughs> I always thought the uh, title of the picture was Cleopatra. Oh, no, no, no. Cleopatra is the name of our coming attraction. <laughs> coming attraction? That's right. Well, that picture cost $40 million. That's nothing. I was cost $100,000. Well, that's not so much. For a ticket? <laughs> you, do you mean that you're charging $100,000 for one ticket? Why, that's I couldn't right. afford to see that picture. Would you like a free pass? <laughs> yes, I would. That'll be $10,000. <laughs> How much did the picture actually cost to make? Including lunches. <laughs> why, why should lunches be so expensive? Do you know what it costs to smuggle corned beef into Egypt? <laughs> I guess costumes uh, must have cost you a fortune. Oh, costumes, my goodness. They... Costumes alone cost $50 million. I imagine uh, Cleopatra's costume was the most expensive. No, there we saved money. <laughs> Eight yards of saran wrap and some beads was all, all didn't, we needed for that. Didn't they uh, try to save money at all? Yes, we tried to save money at all. For example, one time we had this thing, you know, that was going on in a beautiful alabaster hall. And we had 30,000 dancing girls running around. And we had 20,000 musician people playing golden harps. And we had 40,000 slave girls pouring wine. Well, how did that save money? We used paper cups. <laughs> uh, that must have been the famous orgy scene? No, that was the famous coffee break. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we swung on a set there. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I gotta tell you one thing, that the picture has a surprised ending, so nobody will be seated during the last five hours. Well, it's obviously a very long movie, but uh, yes. do you plan to have intermissions? Yes, one intermission, Wednesday. 
guys could take Wednesday off. You mean the show lasts a whole week? Yes, if you see the cartoon. Cartoon? Yes, Ben-Hur. <laughs> Mickey Mouse plays Ben and Minnie plays her. Exactly how long have you been uh, working on this picture? Well, quite a while, because we had a delay one time. We had to lay off on account of the noise. What noise? World War II. <laughs> we had those tiger tanks going there. We were straight. It was really terrible, and then it was these guys with the pointed helmets. Jose. <laughs> Maybe it was World War One. huh? <laughs> Sir, let's talk about your co-star's salary. I understand it's an astronomical figure. She certainly has. <laughs> I, you I, notice that, yeah, huh? I'm talking about I'm her salary. I'm glad to see her Oh, her salary? Yes. Yes, yes. Well, you talk about what you want to talk about, and I'll talk about what I want. I understand that she makes $8,000 a day. Now, that's more than most people isn't make in a some, year. Isn't that something? $8,000 a day? Yeah. It's a lot of Boy, money. Sure. But is she really happy? Boy, is she happy. <laughs> You never heard such giggling in your life. It comes from that girl on payday, and you can hear it all the way across the street. But, Jose, yes. money doesn't buy happiness. No, but for $8,000 a day, you could rent it. Now that you've mentioned your beautiful co-star, I wonder if you'd answer the question the whole world is asking. I would be delighted to, as long as they don't ask it at once. Let them ask you one at a time. Let's start with India, if you want right. There's a lot of people over there. The question ask. is... Yes? Are you going to marry your co-star? I will have to say it this time, and you can quote me on this, and I don't care if you quote me word for word and even better. <laughs> I will marry the woman I love. You will? I always do. <laughs> I don't know what I could tell you about how much I love her. I would climb the top of the highest mountain. I would crawl on my little belly across all of the desert in the hot desert, and I would go across the most ragging rivers for her. When will you see her next? Tonight, if it doesn't rain. <laughs> Listen, you know, I got my good toga on. I don't want to spoil it. Jose, what would you say was your biggest problem in the picture? I would say my biggest problem in the picture was the asp. The uh, asp? Yes. You mean the snake? Yes, the snake asp, yes. <laughs> you see, that is snake. Had to come around and hug Cleopatra real tight and coil around her and come up and bite her right on the neck, you see? And it was my job to teach that asp how to do that. So, so, so what's wrong with that? He got it right the first time. I told him nobody likes a smart asp. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah You pilots get off my lawn I'm trying to do a radio show down here it's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.